A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the latest episode of The Other Hand. Some Irish data that I'd like to start off and take you through at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, we got Irish industrial production data um, relating to September, but I think the quarterly profile is more interesting. Manufacturing output in the three months of September was 22% down on the previous quarter and on a year-on-year basis was 22.8% lower. And within that, the modern component of manufacturing, which is dominated by ICT and particularly the chemical and pharmaceutical sector, was down by 24.1%. And the traditional component of manufacturing Uh, was up by 6.2% with the food component, which is a key part of that, up 7.9%. So these data actually tie back into the discussion we've had on what's happening on the corporation tax side over the last three months. You know, we're seeing intense weakness coming through in the the FDI part of the economy. Okay, and, you know, that's impacting, obviously, on corporation tax revenues. The challenge, of course, is how much it's going to impact on employment into the future. So this is actually a very consistent theme that has been building over recent months. I spoke in the last podcast about the German industrial production data, for example, significant weakness there on the chemical and pharmaceutical side as well. So certainly some warning bells ringing for Ireland here. And it's something we need to watch very, very carefully. Absolutely. Things are slowing down everywhere, Jim. Yeah. I don't think things are falling off a cliff everywhere. I'm always careful to calibrate our remarks about where economies are going. But the evidence that we're seeing, the building evidence that we've talked about on this pod for a while now across continental Europe, as we in the UK like to describe it, uh, is for at best a flatlining economy and at worst an economy that is slowly under the weight of higher interest rates and, well, just not much economic growth, Jim. It's It's been a flatlining story. Yeah. And closer to home for me, at least in the FT today, uh, we've 
uh, got a headline, UK economy stagnates as high borrowing costs hit activity. Flat GDP in the third quarter. So a very similar story to the rest of Europe. It's not falling off a cliff, as I say, here in the UK. We We thought that the economy might have slipped into negative growth in the third quarter, but it seems that we've managed, hooray, a zero rate of growth, which, to give you an idea of the times that we live in, is regarded as something of a success in certain quarters at least. Uh, but the fact that economies aren't growing, I think, is very important, very significant. And I don't know if you, you noticed the remarks of your favourite person, Jim, the governor of, or the chairperson, or what do you call them? Who's the boss of the ECB? What's her title? The president. Chair? The president. President. Yeah. president. President of the ECB, Christine Lagarde, said today, keeping the deposit rate at 4% should be enough to tame inflation. Major shocks would mean a need to revisit that, she said. Hooray, they've noticed the weak economy that you and I have been talking about. And I suspect that, that Christine has been listening to this podcast. What do you think, Jim? Oh, of course she has, Chris. Absolutely. Mind you, you that's how you interpret what she said. Uh, another interpretation would be, and it's probably more consistent with the ECB's view of the world, a shock could actually cause them to increase rates again. <laughs> Which well, would be utterly bizarre. But uh, that, that, that is what she said. And let's, yeah. be, let's be fair in our criticisms and commentary about, about central bankers. What she said is absolutely logical. If there was a major shock, uh, they might have to raise interest rates again. That's true. But then I suppose that's saying something that's always true at every moment in time. Yeah. Uh, I think it needs to, that also needs to be caveated somewhat, and it depends on the nature of the shock. So, for example, yeah. if you've got an oil price shock, that's different to a wage shock. There are shocks and there are shocks. So I do think that, yet again, they need to be a wee bit more careful with their messaging. And also, sometimes just to shut up, because I sometimes think that stating the blindingly obvious isn't helpful, because it then opens the door for the blindingly obvious to be interpreted in multiple ways. Jerome Powell uh, this week said something similar, only yesterday, actually. And that caused a great reversal in both bonds and equities, as these things often do. What he said was quite anodyne. And again, a statement of the blindly obvious, but the markets took it to infer that maybe, just maybe, they might raise interest rates again. So yet again, here we are talking about the communication skills, or should I say the non-communication skills of the world's most powerful monetary officials. So it's all a bit puzzling, really. I would have thought that they would have employed better PR people or better voice trainers, communication specialists to explain just how messaging is A, important and B, vital to get right. And they're just not getting it right, are they, Jim? No, they're not. Shut the hell up would be the best strategy at this stage. Wouldn't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. What's what's the point? Coming out, stating the blind and the obvious and, you know, having sort of market impacts. Uh, We we got Irish inflation last Thursday. Uh, The headline rate has fallen from 6.4% to 5.1%. Uh, but if, if you exclude food and energy, um, it's up at 6.3%. But as we've often discussed, if you exclude everything from the CPI, you won't have any inflation. Uh, so the, the really important thing here is that the headline rate continues to move in a downward direction. Within that, food price inflation uh, increased by 0.3 in the month. That's 6.8% year on year. Um, electricity prices are now lower than they were a year ago by 5.3%. Home heating oil is down 15.8%. And indeed, looking at what's happening, global oil prices at the minute, um, and in the last 24 hours, I've seen a number of petrol retailers here actually cutting prices again because uh, oil prices have come back 
uh, quite significantly. I suppose the other interesting point, and I'd be really interested in your views on this. Do you know what a package holiday is? It's a very old-fashioned concept that we used to go to travel agents to book our holidays. And this was very much in in the pre-internet era. They still exist. People still use them, but far less than they used to. So you'd walk, you used to wander into a travel agent and say, I want, I've got two weeks holiday in August. Where should I go? And you weren't given any choice. The travel agent would generally say, well, I've got these two weeks in Ibiza, these two weeks in Mallorca, and these two weeks on the Costa del Sol. Which ones do you want? Not much of a choice between the three. And he would package up the flights and the accommodation and the airport transfers into one booking, one price. You you signed a check, probably, or handed over your credit card, and that was it. It was booked. Now, of course, because of the internet, the majority of us do it ourselves. We, we separate out all the bits of the package and book them as we see fit. But for, for certain, I think, complicated travel stories, these package holidays still exist. So, uh, you may have heard of an organization called Trail Finders. Yeah. They, they would sell you complex uh, multi-destination, out-of-the-way places in, in a package. Why do you ask? Because during the month of October, package holiday prices increased by 30% and 43.5% year-on-year. Oh, wow. A bizarre statistic. Absolutely no idea what it refers to. But listen, I won't, I won't labour any more on the inflation piece. You know, Suffice to say, the headline rate continues to come down here. Um, and, and like everywhere else, probably, um, well, definitely not as quickly as central bankers would desire. It is proving quite sticky, or at least it's moving in the right direction. But I, I think the economic argument actually supersedes all of this because we have spoken about the flatlining nature of the eurozone economy for some time. And the majority and increasingly the majority of data releases from the euro area are pointing towards weakness. Um, you mentioned the UK economy flat in the third quarter. Well, actually, uh, I checked up. It actually declined by 0.02%. So, oh, we, so we do have a negative print. Yay. <laughs> so are you are you going to congratulate me, Jin, given all the stick that you've thrown at me this, this year over my negativity on the UK? Uh, Chris, I'm going to get back to that in a second, okay? But before I do, looking across the Atlantic, I mean, the US economy has very definitely surprised on the upside this year and actually has given the whole global economic performance a more positive view than might otherwise be the case if you were just looking at China and the euro area. I noticed this afternoon the Michigan University of Michigan's measure of consumer confidence has just fallen from 63.7 to 60.4. That is a significant decline and it's the fourth monthly decline. Also, um, and this is something we spoke about in the last podcast in the context of Europe, but inflation expectations have actually increased. So people are worried, and I think this is mainly on the back of energy costs, uh, that inflation actually could start to rise again in 2024. I think that's incorrect, but that is how nervous consumers are viewing the world at the moment. But listen, the bottom line is that there is a very compelling global economic story of weakness creeping through not falling off a cliff as you say but definitely there is an air of grayness one of the interesting things about that inflation story particularly in the states but it has resonance here in the uk and in ireland and elsewhere i think is you'll have seen the opinion polls in the united states that say amongst lots of things donald trump's going to get back in 
But also the, one of the reasons why Donald Trump is going to get back in is that Joe Biden is doing a really lousy job with the economy. And that's puzzling a lot of analysts, not least people like Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winning economist who now writes for the New York Times, who continuously writes articles saying, look at inflation, look at unemployment, look at the GDP growth rate, look at living standards, look at, look at, look at. And everything is pointing in a better direction in the United States. So why on earth, he asks, very good question, is Joe Biden polling so badly on economic performance? I don't have a full or complete answer to that. But I think one reason is that you and I have these discussions about falling inflation. And the US inflation rate is currently back to almost where the Fed would like it. Not quite, but it is getting there. And the headline rate is about 3%. So it's a wee bit higher than they would like, but it isn't a catastrophic inflation situation. So that economists like you, like me, like Paul Krugman say, hey, what's the problem? Why are you dinging Joe Biden so much on inflation and other economic indicators? And I have a theory why this is the case, Jim, because we, what we forget is that inflation is 3% at the moment, but was much higher last year and the year before. So the price level is still high. Yeah. And people, they don't confuse, but they do understand the difference between inflation and the price level. They're still going into the shops and everything is still very expensive. It's just not going up by as much as it did this time last year. And I think they resent the fact that their real incomes have been cut and this stuff is still as unaffordable as it was a few months ago, notwithstanding people like you and me going, yippee, the inflation thing is almost cured. So I think that there is a subtlety and a nuance to this argument, and it does explain in part, not fully, why Joe Biden is is doing so badly and Donald Trump is, is doing so well. Because we know that Donald Trump will probably not probably, but certainly be able to reset the price level to where everybody wants it, won't he, he, Jim? Uh, Of course he will. Just like Sinn Féin will solve the housing crisis here overnight. I'm surprised they haven't done it already. Yeah, so so am I, actually. Uh, Interesting, I saw a a quote from Trump today saying that if elected president the next time out, he might consider getting the FBI to um, investigate some of his political opponents. Oh, I think he said the FBI, the Justice Department, the CIA, the sheriff, sheriff of Nottingham, anybody that he can find, anybody that can appoint. He's essentially said that anybody that disagrees with me, I'm going to get indicted. I mean, he's, it's quite explicit. And it's that point about autocracy versus democracy. And if Donald Trump, A, gets elected and B, follows through on all of his promises, lots of ifs in that chain of reasoning, um, we do have an autocratic state, not a democratic one. Chris, can I ask you a question? You don't write in the Financial Times under a pseudonym by any chance. I don't, Jim. Why do you ask? I was reading an article uh, today by a guy called Tim Harford, who wrote The Undercover Economist and a number of other... Very good books. books. Very good books, absolutely. Explaining economics in a very um, clear way. Okay. Uh, But anyway, uh, Tim has a book, or sorry, has an article in the Financial Times Um, about the doom loop in the United Kingdom. He cited three personal examples he's had in recent times. One was the with the office of the public guardian um, relating to his father, who unfortunately has passed away since. The second was relating to inquiries he was making with the child and adolescent mental health services about his teenage daughter. And, And thankfully, he assures us she is fine, but he he had to make inquiries. And thirdly, he was trying to book 
an appointment for his son with the NHS orthodontist service. Um, and he was told there was a three year waiting list. OK, so he was talking about those three personal experiences. And I think it's a little bit like uh, some of the criticism we've got that I, we should ignore. But, you know, I said I said I would, but I'll bring it up anyway. Uh, some of the criticism we got about our culture wars piece, people, you know, accusing us of writing and doing a podcast based on a few minor personal experiences can um, I interrupt you there? Because one of the interesting criticisms we got was that uh, we were two middle-aged men, which given how old I am, that's that's a compliment, I think, these days. I'm here, Chris. That we were writing about stuff about which we had no personal experience whatsoever. And both in the written work and in the podcast that we did together, uh, we began by talking about three live real-world examples of the subject matter at hand, two of which were personal to me. So it's really interesting the way people have a go at you who clearly have neither read nor listened to a single word that you have said. It, it, as you say, Jim, we should stay off this stuff. It is that cesspit that is social media. But anyway, getting back to Tim Harford's piece in the FT. So he, he recounts those three personal experiences and his overall conclusion was that UK public services are crumbling. OK, um, and then he said, OK, I'll be accused of you know, basing this uh, analysis on some personal experiences. But he says, actually, the data supports everything he's saying. And he's citing a, a report from the Institute for Government, which is a think tank, and the Chartered Institute of Public Finance and Accountancy, who do every year a public service performance tracker. They look at the performance of healthcare, social services, prisons, the courts, the schools. And the conclusion from this report, and I quote from the report, that the UK is in a doom loop at the moment. When I was reading this, as I said there, somewhat flippantly, it could have been written by you, Chris, because this is something that you have constantly spoken about over the last couple of years. And I've always accused you of being too negative about the UK that, you know, this country isn't much better, nor indeed are most countries. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We have had that disagreement. Sometimes we overlap. Sometimes we agree about where the two economies, the two societies are similar. You've been quite right to, to hold me in check in terms of the tirades of negativity that I've had about the UK. And context is everything, is the answer. There are still plenty of things that are very good about life in the UK. 
But Tim Harford, who it, unfortunately that that's not me. I'd love to be confused with Tim because he is an absolutely brilliant writer, brilliant economist, and does lots of really great economic journalism, both in print in the FT, on his own blog, in his books. He has a regular radio show on BBC, which is for anybody that is a bit of a data nerd is a must listen. But he begins his, his piece, piece. Sorry, the piece he does on the FT magazine every Saturday is fantastic. He looks he looks at some issue. So my point has always been, Jim, is how he begins his piece today. And and I'll I'll quote as well. Everyone in the UK will have their own stories of crumbling public services. And as you say, he goes through his own personal anecdotes. He acknowledges that anecdotes aren't data. And then, as you said, he went into the data that shows you that UK public services are crumbling. And he does explore a bit the, the why question, why this is the case. And the most obvious answer, and it's correct, is that ever since 2010, really, when David Cameron and George Osborne began their great experiment with austerity, the UK public services have been starved of resources. And that, I suspect, is the biggest answer. But it's not just the public sector. It's also the private sector in this country. You try getting anything done with respect to your utility companies, gas, electricity, phone, water, Uh, You look at the headlines about the water companies and the sewage that they pump into the rivers and our beaches, and there's a whole litany of corporate failures. Look at the news today about NatWest Bank, and everybody in this country hates banks almost as much as they hate them there in Ireland, Jim, believe it or not, even though we didn't quite have the bailout story that you had back in the financial crisis. The boss of NatWest, the uh, ex-boss, the ex-CEO, it's been decided, has not been a good lever. Now, anybody who's been a senior person in an organization, private sector organization in recent years, will recognize that term, good lever. Because what it is, it's the bosses, it's the HR team, it's the board, depending on how senior you are, deciding whether or not you get access to your deferred payments. Bonus culture in banks, of course, has come in for a lot of attention over the years. The UK has just uncapped bankers' bonuses again. Dame Alison Rose, if she had been a good lever, was going to get 10 million quid. And because she has been deemed not to be a good lever, because she had a a run-in with Nigel Farage, God bless her. I mean, that's, that's just such a sad story for anybody to have any connection with Nigel Farage, good, bad or indifferent, she's going to be denied £7.6 million. It's a great story in and of its right, because we all have a chuckle at it. And there are so many dimensions that one could laugh at um, and certainly not feel sorry for Dame Allison, because she still gets to pocket several million of her 10. But take a step back, Jim, and ask yourself the question, You know banks quite well. You know that they are fairly complicated, but they're not the most complicated businesses in the world to run. They're very easy to run into the ground, as we discovered during the financial crisis. But do you think, in some kind of helicopter view, moral, ethical, reasonable person perspective, do you think anybody should get paid £10 million to run a bank? I I actually don't in any universe, to be perfectly honest, because... uh... You know, b- banking basically is a pretty simple business that was destroyed by pretty simple people in many cases. Uh, they basically uh, look at one part of society, which are those people who earn are businesses that earn more than they spend. They're called savers. There are others who spend more than they earn. They're called borrowers. And the role of a bank is basically to act as an intermediary between the two. 
um, in a manner that inspires trust and confidence. And I know it has developed into many other aspects, but that's basically what banks are all about. And indeed, it's basically all that the Irish banks do today. And how you could possibly make a bags of dash um, at this juncture, you know, and, and why you should get paid zillions of euro or pounds to actually perform that or run an organization that performs that function um, defies belief in my view. And we, we have discussed the cap on bankers pay in this country and the bonus culture, etc. You know, the arguments being made by Francesca McDonough, for example, who was a previous chief executive of Bank of Ireland, as she was leaving, she was talking about the inability to attract talented people because of the salary cap. And I have said to you before that such a salary cap and bonus cap did not exist up to 2007, 2008. And yet, um, arguably, the banks didn't employ too many talented people. The reason why I raise this is that I think there's a bigger picture story that is Chris John's speculation about what's going on. I talked about the Tim Harford's description of the collapsing public sector in the UK trapped in that doom loop that you quoted there. And it's a pretty compelling article. I would urge anybody to read it. But I do think it extends to the private sector as well. And the connection between these bumper pay packets for bankers and indeed for, for lots of other people, I think is very real. Make no mistake, I do think some people do deserve lots of money, uh, provided they pay their taxes on it. I'd be that sort of flabby liberal that would be relatively relaxed about high pay, provided people pay their taxes. I know that's not a terribly fashionable view. And in particular, I would regard anybody that builds a business from scratch or takes an existing business and grows it in a remarkable way is entitled to share in that upside. But there are far too many what I call trustafarians. You know, there's a term that's used pejoratively for kids here in the UK that inherit trust funds from their parents and then do bugger all with their lives and just live off the money that their parents have worked hard and been lucky enough to to garner and leave on to them. A lot of people running businesses in the UK are like those trust fund kids. Uh, they are taking a business that's been built by somebody else and reaping the rewards of just sitting in a particular seat that's marked gazillionaire if you sit here and you don't really have to be that talented to make sure that you don't run the bank into the ground or whatever institution that it is. This jackpot culture, as you might call it, has been around forever. Of course, people have always sought to get rich quickly. Uh, there's plenty of con men and other carpetbaggers and other terms that we might use that have been around forever. Gamblers, uh, all sorts of different people tried to make money quickly. But I think something changed in the 1980s, Jim. With the liberalization of financial services on both sides of the Atlantic, it started in the 1970s in the US and in the 1980s in the UK and Ireland. And working in financial services in particular, leaching out into other corporate activities became a way of making an awful lot of money, uh, you know, king's ransoms uh, incredibly quickly. And all you had to do was be a bluffer, um, be in the right place at the right time. Uh, yeah, you might have to work hard, but you know, you try telling a coal miner or a steel worker or uh, a doctor or a nurse or a policeman that they don't work hard. They don't get paid £10 million a year for working just as hard as, as the average banker. And I think that contributed to a culture uh, or a, the start of an attitude towards work, which is that it's it's just all rigged and it's all unfair 
And the idea that you get fair fair pay for fair efforts with a bit of luck has gradually seeped out of the system. And when you combine it here in the UK in particular, but also in the United States, with the kind of government that we've had now for a decade and a half at least, that has been run by the similar kind of cohort that run these companies, bluffers, blaggers, second raters, who've all got power, who've got, as a result, got all access to money of one another kind of jackpot. And then when they leave politics, they get a real jackpot. None of them terribly talented, none of them terribly hardworking. The one thing Boris Johnson, for example, was never was hardworking, but nevertheless, incredibly successful in his own terms. And so I think something has disappeared from the zeitgeist, something has disappeared from the culture. And you can see it across a whole range of industries, service industries, manufacturing industries in the public sector, is the old idea that your parents would have said to you, Jim, I'll bet, correct me if I'm wrong, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And I don't think anybody believes under 40 believes that anymore, because they believe probably with a lot of evidence that we've just cited some of it, a lot of evidence that actually the system is rigged and it isn't worth trying hard to be honest, straightforward, hardworking, have a career, have a progression. And indeed, doing a job for its own sake, doing it well, because there's no point because you don't get society doesn't value these jobs anymore. You know, if you're a doctor or a nurse, they'll tell you that society doesn't afford them anything like the respect that it used to that there were non-monetary rewards to these jobs. Teachers will tell you the same thing. Ask a policeman or woman whether or not society affords them much respect these days and is the game worth the candle. So I think our societies and cultures are changing for the worse. I know I'm sounding like an old man. That's probably because I am. But I see, like Tim Harford, examples of this daily now. It's got lots of different causes. My sociological speculations are just one of them. The other, of course, is the fact that there's no money. And this is where the incoming Labour government, assuming we're going to get one here in the UK, is going to run into trouble. Because the extraordinary thing is that because we don't have any economic growth, the tax revenues aren't going to be there to pay for what has to be done to the UK, which isn't just to get it growing. That's part of the picture. But really, because of these deeper forces that I observe around me at work, I think something of a cultural as well as economic transformation is needed. And I'm still getting more pessimistic, if anything, about our prospects. Fascinating. I'd love to come back, actually, and do a much more in-depth discussion on this, because I'd love to kind of understand and get beneath the bonnet in terms of the cultural factors that cause these problems. And you know, the, the notion that in this country, it's certainly very much the notion that all we have to do is keep throwing money at public services and everything will be all right. But there would appear to be somewhat of an inverse relationship between the money you spend and the output you get from it. There, there are cultural forces and, and yeah. they're not economic, Jim. Think about the pub. Pubs in this country, with honourable exceptions, are awful places, dirty expensive, crap food, and anybody coming from an Irish pub experience, as I do regularly, uh, are appalled by what the British pub has become and are not surprised 
by how many are closing every single day. There are lots of reasons for that. The fact that you can drink at home so much more cheaply these days because of supermarket pricing, etc. I'm not saying there is a simple explanation for these phenomena, but the Irish and British pub experiences are completely different. And one of the driving factors is that in Ireland, you still accord the bar man or bar woman quite a lot of respect. It's a, it's a reasonable trade. It's, it's, it's something that's reasonably well paid, um, certainly not at banker levels, but it is something where people actually treat each other with respect uh, as, as human beings. Here in the UK, we treat our bar staff, from, certainly from a, an employ, employer perspective, but also from a customer perspective, often with complete contempt. And it's about attitude. It's about culture. It's about respect. People need respect. And I think that the lack of respect... Uh, across a whole range uh, of different dimensions of society um, explain a lot about what's going on. The pub I go to in Shepherd's Bush when I go over to see QPR, the Crown and Scepter, uh, a great establishment, great food, uh, great culture in there, but it's run by an Irishman who unfortunately died in the last 12 months. But anyway... Uh, I hope that culture continues. So, so well, that's, that's the point. It'll be interesting to it see. It will be very interesting to see if yeah. it does. Uh, Chris, one final question I've been meaning to ask you for the last few weeks. Have you listened to Hackney Diamonds? No, um, I've listened to a couple of tracks. Certainly the single that was released, I loved and loved the video as well. Yeah. But I, I, I've read the reviews and it's on my list of things to listen to. And I can't wait to listen to it. I'm not a, as big a Stones fan as you are, but certainly from what I've heard so far and read about it, it's an absolute classic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And um, you're, you're talking about a group of individuals in their late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, Mick Jagger's over 80, isn't he? He's over 80, absolutely. It's, it's, it's an amazing story. So two elfers like us are entitled to talk about culture wars, okay? Chris, have a great let me, let me just let me just t- tell you about one other thing today. I don't don't know whether you grew up with these two albums, but the two classic compilation albums that I grew up with were the Red and the Blue albums of the Beatles. I have both of them, yeah. They're they've been remastered by George yeah. Martin's son and released yeah. today. That's top of my list to go and have a listen to. And again, the reviews are that they are an extraordinary new listen. Ah, uh, great. I look forward to that. You have a good one, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.